This episode of Higher Ed Happy Hour is brought to you by Helix Education, the leader in data-driven enrollment growth. I'm not sure if you've seen this yet, but Helix just published the Enrollment Growth Playbook, the largest collection of adult enrollment growth strategies ever released to the industry, outlining how Helix grows their partner's enrollment eight times faster than the industry average. From determining growth opportunities to designing a marketing strategy, streamlining enrollment operations, solidifying a retention approach, and leveraging technology and data intelligence, the Enrollment Growth Playbook is an institution's step-by-step roadmap to adult student enrollment success. And you can download it today for free. Just visit helixeducation.com slash happy hour. Hello, Kevin. Uh, hi, Libby. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Kevin Carey. This is the Higher Ed Happy Hour podcast brought to you from the offices of New America in Washington, D.C. I'm the director of the education policy program here. Libby is a Senior editor at Vox.com. Associate editor at Vox.com. I'm just going to keep increasing <laughs> You can title. keep promoting me. It's yeah. fine. I'll be like yeah. editor-in-chief by the end of the year. Yep. Editor of politics, a sleepy, boring job in, this time of, in, these, in these days and times. So it's been like three months. Yeah. Welcome to us catching yeah. up and like having some drinks and I guess we recorded. Cool. That's exactly right. All right. right. Sounds good. Um, so all of you listeners have been, been waiting, waiting for three months. Thank you for your patience and not deleting our podcast from your My Podcasts uh, button on your iPhone or whatever the equivalent is on an Android device. Is it the same? I don't know. I have an iPhone. Yeah. I assume so. Yeah. It's a lot going on. Yeah, there have been some things. I you're went, a professor now. I, yeah, I'm a professor, Let's professor start now. There. All so right. So you're a professor now. So I have, uh, I'm in the fourth week of my five-week uh, one-credit course that How's I going? am being an adjunct for at American. It's it's going pretty well. I have I don't think I've like come out of this with shocking new insights into higher education, which is probably for the best. But I've enjoyed it a lot. It's been it's been going well. I hope the students would say the same thing. The main thing I've learned is it's hard to teach as a second job, and it's hard to teach as a second job when you thought it was going to be a sleepy summer, and instead mm-hmm. you're like staying at work until eight and up until midnight working every night. So I feel a little bad about that. But I developed the course from scratch. It's been going pretty okay. They're all writing op eds. It is a course on policy writing for normal human beings. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are all writing op eds this week for as part of their final project. Wow. I am on a variety of topics, almost none of which have to do with education, and I'm very excited about that. That's them. a lot of fun. Yeah, no, it's great. It's uh, seven. It's seven students, so it's very small. This is a very like good slow walk into teaching. That's not bad. Everybody's yeah. enthusiastic. It's two and a half hours on Monday night, which is a heavy lift for me, and I assume a heavy lift for everyone else mm. there as well. And it has really just been a joy pretty much straight through. So. Have you ever had to go back to work after? I have I have had to go back to work in the sense that the minute I get home, I am back online. Right. I think every single time. <laughs> no, Monday. Monday was the first time I have not had to do that. Yeah. Every week it's been like, oh, the healthcare bill failed. Oh, the healthcare bill came back to life. Oh, this Don Jr. email thing happened. So it's the news cycle has like very kindly put a hold on any news between 5.30 and 8 p.m., but it has immediately rubbed up again almost always as soon as I'm done, which is just kind of how it's been. Well, now that you're you have this job, what it means is that if you were to just post some kind of crazy offensive rant on your personal Facebook page, the the media would be within its rights to write a news article that says American University professor. (laughs) says offensive thing. It is true. It is a thing that has made me realize how like tenuously affiliated you can be as an adjunct. Right. Um, I am, I do have a faculty ID in my wallet, which feels unreal, but I do, I am, you know, I was sort of surprised when they paid me. I kept thinking something was going to go wrong. That's about the level of like institutional contact I have had. If you are an adjunct, yeah, you really feel it, right? Like you have, you're just so far away from anything that feels sort of important or like to the university. You're at the far periphery. But the world sees you as a, quote, yeah, professor. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it is weird to be like, not only am I a representative of Vox, which is a thing I take really seriously, but I am also a representative of AU, a thing that like does not un- int- feel intensely real to me, given sort of, especially when you're coming on for a one credit course and you're designing it yourself, everyone was great and enthusiastic, but there was not like a lot of, I don't know, I'm used to jobs where it's like at some point you have to show somebody that you've done something. Yeah. Um, and there was, there was not Academia a lot Academia is that. not quite the same yeah. thing as that. And what are we drinking right now? Oh, yeah. So we are drinking gin rickies. Gin rickies. Which are the official since in, they were invented in a heat wave in DC in the 1880s in right. August. So they're very August. appropriate. Uh, they are gin... This is Junipero Gin from California, lime juice, club soda, or LaCroix, because this is me, and a dash of simple syrup. Cheers. Cheers. They're really refreshing. You could drink them all afternoon, then suddenly you realized you've had like three shots of gin, and it's unfortunate. Gin-based summer drinks do not feel like drinks to me at all. 
when they go down. There's this guy on Capitol Hill who does this big gin and tonic party every year. It's like a longtime staffer. He kind of does it over on Barracks Row. Oh, that's fun. And I went one year. And I, I don't think I've been that drunk since then, you know, because I was just <laughs> like, give me more of those things. And But yeah, it was because it was middle, middle of summer, gin and tonics. It's great. He yeah. Every, these, every week yeah. I start the week being like, I'm not going to drink out any work stress this week. That seems unhealthy. And every week on Friday, I'm like, <laughs> so that was a week, guys, I guess. Um, let's have some gin. So I've been I've been doing a lot of gin drinks this summer. Well, things will slow down for fun. you after the impeachment or invocation of the 25th Amendment, whenever those things happen. You Look, know, so. I'm just ha- I'm just excited for recess. Let's just get to recess. It's but don't you kind of, I, I mean, we'll, we'll get to higher education eventually, yeah, but eventually. Uh, don't you kind of feel like... Like the dude sort of almost has this pathological need to kind of lean into the void. Yes. Like, you know, like if nothing's happening, that's when he's just, oh, nothing's happening. I need to say something terrible now. It's not even that so much as like a good thing happened. Let's stomp on it. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, the one, one struggle we've had with polling, um, and I think assume that everybody's having with polling, is that like all the healthcare stuff, we keep trying to pull the healthcare bill in to figure out if the healthcare bill is making Trump more unpopular, making Republican legislators more unpopular, whatever. We finally realized that every big healthcare development, unfortunately, also tracked with the giant Russia development to the point where it was mm. basically completely impossible to disentangle them. And sometimes this was like probably a welcome changing of the subject from the healthcare bill is terrible, everyone hates it, it's not going to get any votes. But also sometimes it was like, hey, the House passed it, let's immediately launch into another, uh, the next, you know, saga of the Russia scandal. Mm-hmm. So the degree to which. I would say this is definitely something different about being an editor is that it used to be that just the education news cycle and anything big enough to like pull in everyone were my problems. And now the entire political news cycle uh, right. to a degree dictates my life. And let me tell you, it's pretty busy. Yeah, I can imagine. I'm not, I do not envy you that at all. So is it slower? Like, I always wonder, like, nothing is happening. On the education on side? On education. Is it slower Well, we're, we're doing a lot of work on the gainful and... Mm. and uh, uh, broad defense that's law. true. I should not. I should yeah. not say nothing. So that's been a lot. Nothing of, has been, been happening to the like yeah. page of healthcare, but plenty yeah. of things have been happening. We yeah. should talk about them. Yeah. All right. Well, so let's <laughs> let's rewind. So I don't. Was there even a president's budget in April when we talked? I don't know that there was. I don't think I. Yes. There First was president's one. budget was in February. Okay, but then the, or the March. All right. So March. it was early March. And it kind of came. I mean, I'm interested. Like, I'm interested in the president's budget, sort of in the, some of the same ways I'm interested in the president see in general because mm-hmm. i think it sort of doesn't exist right in the same way that sort of donald trump as president sort of doesn't like in exists in the sense that like we can't escape it in one ways but it doesn't exist in the sense that it's, it's almost indistinguishable from not having a president if that makes sense like there's this great i said we were talking about game of thrones like so there's this bit in game of thrones where like lord Varys and Tyrion are having a conversation about the nature of power right and there's this like, sort of question, and it's like there's three men, and there's I guess, I guess it's like a priest, uh, 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 someone else, someone else, and there's one guy with a sword, and which one does the guy with the sword kill? And that tells you who has the power. Mm-hmm. And so is this the, the chaos <coughs> is a ladder scene, or is it a different, different scene about the different. nature of That's power? That's with right? Littlefinger. That yeah. okay. This is with Varys and Tyrion. Okay. At least in the book, it's with Varys and Tyrion. It might be in a different oh, place. Oh, Yeah. Okay. I've, read, um, I've read the first book, but we can. And then I this is from the later we books. Can, we can carry um, on. But there was a TV equivalent of this whole thing. And anyway, so what, what Varys essentially says is uh, I think it's power is a mummer's game, power is a shadow on the wall. It's just what people believe it is. Mm-hmm. If they believe it, then you have it, and if they don't, if you, they don't believe it, then you don't. But it's not anything other than that. So it's sort of simultaneously immensely important and like also insubstantial. And I feel I like think that is that, a good metaphor for the president's yeah. budget. I think it's a good metaphor for a lot of the Trump presidency. Right. Honestly, I was thinking about this yesterday with affirmative action, which we'll get to. But the degree to which this is important because it's signaling versus this is important because it's actually happening is something we definitely struggle with, which I guess has always probably always been the case with like the yeah. president's budget. But it feels particularly acute in this presidency because people are so attuned to signals and so willing to pick up on things that might or might not actually happen but seem to be threatening. Um, but yeah, the budget is like the signal of all signals. That it's will all, not right. under like, especially this budget, just will like not under any circumstance, even yeah. with a Republican Congress. It doesn't. Be made so like a, a president's budget is not a policy choice. It's mm-hmm. just a, 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 a means of public communication. It is a more right. detailed and boring State of the Union. Right. And so it, it exists to the extent that you can make it exist and you want it to exist and you put the effort into it and I mean it was a first budget and all that but it just seemed like a lot of Heritage Foundation boilerplate like I guess we need to cut the federal domestic spending so we'll just cut some of this and 
And it had no traction in Congress, even though it's the same party, right? And then it's just gone now. It was also remarkably undetailed. Yes. I mean, this was something where even like the heritage budgets, which I had read pretty extensively because I, I helped coordinate coverage of it. And so I had everyone read sort of the heritage proposals on their priorities so they would know what they would look like if they were to later be incorporated. And the thing I ran into was like, actually, the heritage budgets were much more detailed about like how you would actually get this $500 million reduction from annual programs at the Department mm -hmm. of Justice, uh, probably because at some point, I guess even the Trump administration doesn't want to like come out and say, we're going to cut the Office of Violence Against Women and things like that. I mean, there, that is the degree where you really get to the hard goals <coughs> and the small programs that mm -hmm. people actually care about and look bad on the line items. But I covered most years of Obama's budgets. They were also wish lists. They were not always like particularly detailed or particularly thought out, but they were much, much more detailed than this. I mean, there, there, there were often proposals like, we're going to have a fund to incentivize this. And we have not explained how we're going to incentivize it yet, but we know how much the fund is going to be and we know what the goal is. This was very much like, we're going to reduce this department by 30%. We're not going to tell you where the cuts are. Right. Um, which makes it even harder. I mean, I guess it, in, in one sense, it doesn't matter. On the other hand, like what the president's priorities are seems important, even if Congress seems unable to take them up. Yeah, I remember when like this stuff came out, my editor was like, do you want to write about this? And I was like, no, because I don't think it matters. I don't think, I mean, I, I could write some whole thing, the premise of which is that these are real proposals that we should all take seriously. But I kind of think that if I do that, it will just be an exercise because I don't think that they are. And I don't think that we should. And I mean, it didn't help when the president's budget director said, I think, quote, just because it's in our budget doesn't mean it's our policy. When again, that's all a budget is. Like literally, it's just that around their kind of crazy tax stuff. And I mean, and it just, it, like, I don't, did you read the New York Magazine profile of Betsy DeVos? The, I did. Yeah. I did. It's very good. It is. It, it is. Uh, Kudos to Lisa Miller, I think. Who's, I believe, I mean, yeah. She did a, like, I was, that was one of those things where I, where I read it and I'm like, yep, someone, this was this was waiting for someone to write, and yeah. she went and reported it and like wrote a really good piece. But she talked, you know, the, you know, part of it is this whole thing with part of the budget was cutting Special Olympics funding, mm -hmm. right? You know, and so she's like meeting, you know, they there's like these great scenes where she's meeting with the uh, Betsy DeVos is like meeting with these people and saying, "Oh, I support you," and then and then they they want to cut the funding. Yeah, one two things. I mean, my one quibble with this profile is it felt to me like it really overstated her importance and her influence. Is, so, is anything besides a funder right. in the ed, in sort of the mainstream ed reform community. And having tried to report out stuff when she was nominated, which was feels like a billion years ago, but I think was the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Yeah. But I mostly remember, and I'm like, I would say I'm decently well connected. I've been covering this beat for a while. I had an extremely hard time getting anyone who had ever like met her in person. Not that they didn't want to talk about her. Just I kept being like, hey, like I'm actually looking for somebody who can like maybe talk about what she's like beyond sort of the caricature that's out there. Like this was a very friendly request and it was basically impossible. And so that that was my one, like that sort of premise that like she used to be a sort of like bipartisan sort of or right. like widely supported like if figure was, was off to me. That said, the rest of it was really incredible and kind of sad in some ways like it was it, i couldn't tell if the message was like this woman and this is a mark of a good profile not a, a flaw in the writing like yeah. this woman is a decent basically decent human who is like super over her head and actually somewhat powerless or she is completely fake and nothing that she says means anything and like i could you can do both of those readings yeah. which is why it was so good yeah, it was very measured it kind of and then like it reminded me of that great there was this great times <laughs> piece that i went into super skeptically because it felt like it was planted by her allies during her confirmation about her record on lgbt rights and it actually was very specific and talked about like accommodations she'd made for trans people in the 90s that were like fairly forward thinking and such and then like all the narrative came out that she'd opposed rescinding the guidance and they did anyway and it's like that's that's your department like if if you can't tell them not to do that it does not matter what is in your heart. Yeah. No, it was. It was It was very measured. It was very well-reported. It was, like, well-structured. And then she drops the word bully into, mm -hmm. I think, the last sentence. And it's just kind of – it's like – she just, like, that one it's word. It's devastating. It's so it good. It just yeah. – it's just kind of come all the way to the end and then just, like, bump, and that's it. And it really – <clears throat> there was a real kind of deafness to that, but mm -hmm. it felt earned, kind of mm -hmm. the way that she yeah. had sort of set it up. I, I mean, the, you know, the conclusion that I drew from that, which was sort of, I guess, the conclusion that I had coming in, but mm -hmm. but was that, like, Betsy DeVos has just led such an, in some ways, unusual and cloistered life right. that it just left her really unprepared for a job that, like, requires you to be 
knowledgeable and multidimensional in in like unusual ways. Right. Yeah, I think that's a fair. I think that's definitely a fair conclusion. It's how difficult she has been to staff is mm. really telling. Yeah. I'm not shocked, but right. Nobody can come. I mean, I don't think anybody's come into the ed, ed secretary job knowing everything they had to do to be able to do it. No. Nope. But for the most part, like, they have not <clears throat> had a ton of trouble attracting somebody to mm-hmm. do those other things. And if they're, I mean, they're they're not even, do they have an undersecretary for nope. higher ed yet? they do not. I was going to say, that if I miss that, I'm going to yeah. feel really like uh, an There's idiot no live. one Senate confirmed They had to in bring people out. I mean, they had to bring people her. out to do, like, the easy, what? Like, right, yeah. Like, it shouldn't really shouldn't be hard to find an undersecretary for K-12. Like, there's, like, 50 yeah. state superintendents who are qualified for that job. You would think one of them would want it. Um, right. Like, it's really, really telling how difficult she is to staff. And across the board, I guess this is the deep state, like, mania, like, how little attention is being paid to career folks. And I that definitely right. appears to be true in ed. I would, I, given what's happened in other policy areas, I would guess that's true in other policy areas as well. But, like, ed should have a structure. It's not like they've had trouble getting people confirmed before, where, yeah. like, where they, they haven't had trouble getting people confirmed before, where there are, like, people to step up and de facto fulfill these roles. Right. But, like, not that just. Yeah, because no one happening. even really cares. You know, I mean, that's yeah. the thing. I mean, it's education. I mean, that's the other. I know we've said this in the podcast before, but it is just such a, for me, such a strange thing to live in a world where everybody knows who the Secretary of Education is and has an opinion it's so about great. him or her. I it's... had a meeting with an intern and a new <coughs> staffer this week who are right? like both interested in education stories and we're sort of pitching things that reminded me of stuff I would have pitched three or four years ago. And so I know why many of them would not have worked. Mm. But I also was like. It's good you're in your job. Yeah, it was like, you know, but I also said, you know, you guys have no idea, like, how great it is that we can put, like, Betsy DeVos's name in a story about regulations and people will read it. Right. Like, no, we were writing, like, seven quiet ways Betsy DeVos has, has changed American mm-hmm. education or whatever about some of these regulatory changes. Right. And I'm like, you know how hard it would have been like, two years ago if Arnie Duncan had, like, no, had a yeah, change I mean, of heart and woke up yeah. and rolled back defense to repayment? Like, <clears throat> nobody would. No one, there's yeah. no headline you could have put on that story, yeah. literally none, that would, that, that described it accurately and would have mm. made people click on it. And then to your like, point about the piece, it does almost everything about her uh, overstates the importance of the de- Secretary of Education right. in some way. Right. Right. You know, but but I think it's the... Which is not new, though. Yeah. I mean, that happened with yeah. Duncan. That happened with Spellings. It's right. interesting. It's not really a mirror. Like, Arnie Duncan was not widely known, but I do think he sort of presaged this, like, there were a lot of people with really intense feelings about Arnie Duncan. They were a very small yeah. percentage of the American population. Right. But many more so than, like, the Secretary of Commerce, I would assume. And I do feel like, in a way, that presaged this. I, I would assume that Betsy DeVos might have more name recognition than any other cabinet secretary in the Trump administration. That's a great question. If I, I can pull that or I can find somebody who can, yeah. I would actually really love to do that. Which, compared to the – I mean, like, I would say – I mean, Rick Perry. Yeah, yeah I guess But, like, that's could right. they name him Secretary of Energy? Yeah, but would yeah, they I know guess who the question is. is like, yeah. can you name? Yeah, if you said, I think if you said, who's the Secretary of Education, people would answer that question. Yeah. They would be, oh, yeah. it's Betsy DeVos. Like, well, who knows? Yeah, with, yeah. I mean, the last, I would say, I know how this sounds, like, I I would say I'm on a mild first name basis with the last three secretaries of education, which, okay. which, is, okay, only, which is only as a way of illustrating that it's normally not a very important <laughs> job, right? Because it's not, no, you know. This, this is true. Margaret Spelling you know saying happy birthday to Doug Letterman at Inside Higher Ed a couple of years ago. Right. Like, it was, you know? it was a weird moment in my life. But, like, she had time, and this was post-secretary, yeah. but she had time to, like, drop by and meet with a small staff and, like, hang out. And, right. She did not have a security detail at any moment. No, no. Arnie I mean, never had a security not, detail. Nope. Like uh, this is, John King, who knows that John King was even the Secretary of Education. He was had the job for like a year. I sometimes forget right. this. And like you know. I covered him. I'm sorry, John King. It's not yeah. about you. It, just, <laughs> it was not a very interesting yeah. time. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. And, for, and it's in partly because I think, because the critiques of her resonate with the larger critiques of the Trump administration generally, which is this sort of combination of bad policy plutocracy and ignorance mm-hmm. you know and that's that's kind of and, it, and again i think it's particularly it's particularly resonant in education because education is a knowledge-based profession and a middle-class profession yes and so she is implicitly being compared to the nation's workforce of public school teachers who is also a workforce of uh middle-aged women mm-hmm. um, oh that's interesting you're you totally know? right that's a that, that that might be partly why it is like she seems like someone who could be a teacher just on like gender and age right but but, but the difference being she doesn't have a teaching certificate yeah. and she's rich right. right whereas no teachers are rich and they all had to go to college and they all had to go and like pass as a licensure exam mm-hmm. to get that job and so the idea that she is now the nation's head teacher even though she's not mm-hmm. that that's what the job suggests just feels like kind of insulting and wrong to people yeah i would say the other thing is like it's interesting because it feels to me like a lot of state-based stuff has stalled as well. But I do think I'm all for, like, secretary 
name recognition. This is great. I am delighted that I can put Betsy DeVos's name in like boring stories about regulations and maybe people will read them. It's fantastic. But it also amplifies this misconception of what the secretary can actually do, Mm -hmm. even among people who really should know better. Right. It is really hard. And this is something I'm, I wish I were still writing so that I could write more on, but that I'm looking forward to sort of shepherding some coverage of is the things that she can change are, are these sort of crucial, but peripheral to the actual like classroom education of students issues that the department has a lot of control over civil rights, Mm -hmm. student loans, you know, I, I find it hard to convince people that, like, no, actually, she's done nothing on vouchers, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Like, there is not a voucher system that exists today that didn't exist because Betsy DeVos right. is education secretary. Well, and such a, like, a hard no from Congress yeah. on their proposal, right? I mean, it didn't, it didn't even seem like they took any time to think about it. I really They're wish like, they'd nah, taken it up. There's, like, some interesting – like, okay. Lisa Murkowski, who has been so interesting and influential on healthcare, like, vouchers in Alaska. There are a lot of people who, like, strongly believe, regardless of their views on choice, that, like, it's a, it would be a disaster for basically geographic and sure. – ruralness reasons i really wanted to get into that um and like congress did yeah. not even do me no, the favor of like even... considering the bill so that we could write some of these stories right. it was it was really quite unfortunate it kind of came and went i mean i mean you don't get control of the presidency in both houses of congress very often so the, i mean you get a couple shots at this and then you got to wait 20 years or something and w- this was the shot and did the, does congress have any interest in federal funding for val- apparently they have none at all yeah i was i was just just nothing we are like 25 percent of the way into this term if you count the point at which congress has to like quit doing things and go campaign we're more than we're like we've got like a year left yeah they've done not just nothing on voucher they've done nothing they've confirmed they've confirmed supreme court justice like this right. is a great squandering comparable to jimmy carter's of legislative majorities yeah i don't know their politics k-12 i made fun of them on twitter and i love them uh had this post about like what the failure of healthcare means for HEA reauthorization, <laughs> which is like I they're so smart and so great at tracking stuff and I could not do my job without them, but it also was like the most politics K twelve post I have ever seen. But that's a real thing. Like if the committee works in a bipartisan right. way in healthcare, does that lead into a bipartisan HEA? If talks break down, I don't get the sense this is like anybody's top priority, but I also get the sense that like Patty Murray and Lamar Alexander are like panting to reclaim their like bipartisan deal maker right. machine that they yeah. had in 2015 yeah. when they were actually able to get ESSA through. Yeah. Um, so I do think that could have some, I don't think that would be like a big win for anyone, but at least would be a big win for them is like painting themselves as the people who can like sit down at the table and do stuff. So I do think that that is a possibility. I mean, most like of the logic of ESSA was just to do it. Yeah. You know, it no, wasn't so like because... we need to do a thing. Let's right. do it. Oh, look how great the Senate is. Yeah. Like doing a bipartisan right. thing. Good and for I, them. That's why the White House went along with it. I um, mean, that, that's my big critique of it in a lot of yeah. ways. Was Alexander absolutely wants to like reclaim this on healthcare. He is like champing at the bit to do it, despite his like long held views on Medicaid. I think at this point he wants to like be the problem solver and like come up with something that actually passes because it's good for him. I assume. I mean, the problem with HEA, and this is what I've always said, is there's no crisis, and there are so many other crises in the world. Like, there's no cliff. There's no waiver. Right. Everything seems to be ticking along. Pal, they have some repel again, Pal apparently, which happened, right. which was yeah. a good thing that happened. Like, yeah. No, that's great. Um, yeah. I don't know. So let's see. What else have they done? We have the whole... So there was the whole fiasco with an acting director of civil rights with uh, the Title IX stuff, which was such a... Okay. So... <laughs> Regardless, I mean, this is such a Trump thing, like Trump administration thing, regardless of your ideology and ideas and position about Title IX enforcement, of which there are many. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about on the podcast. I think they are. We've devoted episodes of the podcast. I, saying, I actually issues. don't want to do yet another Title IX episode. So, so we're not going to relitigate this so stuff. Just, like, just as to say, other. it's complicated. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some I think there are like there's a legitimate debate there about the the proper way to enforce Title IX and what the Obama administration did and all the rest of it. But oh, if I you're have gonna... a sidebar to interject while we're talking about Title okay. IX, by the way. Speaking of being back on a college yeah. campus, this is the one thing I gathered right. that is like there are like flyers in the restrooms at AU about sexual assault and what to do if you're sexually assaulted. Like the climate on campus, this is not to say that I have like turned into one of those people who's like, wow, the kids these days are really different. But yeah. like the climate on campus, just from the like minimal amount of time I spent on campus right. on that issue and on some others is like, I was in college 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. It is dramatically different right. in a decade, which is really, really stunning. And I think a thing for as much as I've immersed myself in this and then as much as I've covered it in a way that I didn't really realize, right. like, random bathroom in the sociology building 
posters on your Title IX rights level. Like yeah. it's it's anyway that was that was sidebar, uh, but that was like the one thing that was the one insight I had that I meant to like come and and contribute, and I forgot about it. You are so. old enough for the kids these days, isn't? I am. A, I am. So it's, it's embrace nuts. it. It's yeah, great. Yeah, I'm 30 now. You know? That happened. You know, so um, congratulations, so. happy birthday. Yeah. We did the last one. No, we did the last one in May. We did the last one either on May. We did the last one in before. April. April twenty first was the last was one. Really? I okay. looked it up. Yeah. Maybe I canceled in May. So maybe that's what it was. Yeah. So in your red. birthday. You've turned thirty since the last one. I've, I've turned thirty since the last one. That's an exciting milestone. Happy birthday to you. I totally Louis derailed Nelson. this. I'm really yeah. sorry. Title no, no, nine. No, that's interesting. There's stuff happening. So like we're, again, go back to our old podcast. We have some great discussions where I feel like we hash through that with Andrew. All of which is to say, if you're going to come in and your job is to sort of take the other side of this argument and you're sitting in a taped interview with the New York Times, like not at some event somewhere where you're talking to a friendly audience and you just start talking off the... But you're in a taped interview with the New York Times and you just start saying a bunch of stuff about how it's all nonsense and like the whole thing, you know, like none, all these claims are ridiculous and it's just six months later, we were drunk and they didn't... I mean, like the, the level of incompetence... Right. Of that staggers me. The they're bad at this, which I'll come back to when we get to affirmative action. The like they're just bad yeah. at this is right. really astonishing. So there's that. Um, there were a flurry of tweets a few weeks ago about some story about how DeVos had met with a men's rights group. And yep. honestly, I read all these tweets and I was like, that is kind of a mean way to describe fire because that's honestly what I assumed. It I kind of like fire. And then actually. yeah, I mean, they yeah. Did, like I think that they are possibly extremist on the issue of sexual assault in a way that is not great but like that doesn't they do also a ton of other valuable work they do a lot for student journalists anyway i'm like yeah yeah, i have i have a nuanced they're like a serious organization i clicked through that is not who they met with and i was like i retract all of my like i had met about to retweet and be like okay come on guys like they do some legitimate work and then i clicked through and it was like no this was just literally a men's rights on campus group okay why would you literally meet with a men's rights group when there are because that Less seems polarizing, you know. That it, seems just, normal in Trump world. Yeah, it's like right? either either you're catering to the base, or you're like, it's just the subtext is text all the time. The subtext is text yeah. all the time, and there's like no acknowledgement that like there is any. It's beyond that. It's like it's like the dog whistle is like audible, and there also is like no engagement of the like actually somewhat legitimate arguments on some of these points. It's just like let's find the like dog whistliest thing we can do bypass the people who are like quote unquote more respectable but also like maybe more capable of like right. representing a legal position here and just like go straight to let's them. just go get our backslash why won't anyone go out with me and, like yeah like, and i mean I, really, I, I cannot remember and... i cannot remember the name of the group but it was a group i'd not have heard of before if it's like some men's empowerment group i'm very very sorry i've just like libeled <laughs> them at length but i don't think that's no, what no, it was no, it was no, like it was, a specific I mean, group on I mean, this it issue was some that of has the, been formed like, to like protest this right. it's not like the do process people Fighting. over spender rights. You know, they're they're like legitimate groups that can represent this point of view to you and to the public better. But like, of course, that's not who they met. Fighting with. misandry on Twitter one meme yeah, at a time. Like, they're you know, very like bad those at guys. it. They're just very bad at yeah, it. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, so that whole thing is a fiasco. And again, it's they're... too early for OCR data and like what they're what complaints they've opened and what they're investigating. I believe, but I am awaiting this oh, okay. uh, with interest. Yeah, because they do legally like. You can't change that people can still complain and they legally still have to investigate. But aren't they not going to report who they're investigating anymore? No, they they were. Okay, so this has gone back and forth so many times that I'm probably wrong. All right. I think they did it and then they did. And then they said it was going to be the last time. And then I don't know. There has been an updated Mm. list since they took office as far as I'm concerned. But I don't know beyond that where things stand. Okay. So they did all the things that I was worried they would do on for-profit colleges. Yes. There's absolutely nothing. Everything that has happened from the department. And to be clear, actually, like, it, this hasn't been true for all education issues. Mm-hmm. They've been pretty reasonable on S enforcement. That's what I've heard. Out. I have not tracked it super closely. Yeah, but that's no, the, I mean, that's they, the actually, they actually, and I think this is mostly a staffing thing. They hired a guy named Jason Votel who was from, I think, Maryland Can. We, did we talk about his tweets? I think with the, like the last podcast did we? we did, this was recent. And I remember just like going through when he was appointed. I don't know him. I know yeah. some people at can, but I have never met him. But um, they seem to be like legitimately reading the applications and saying yeah, yes I mean, no he stuff. like his Twitter okay. history was fascinating. It was right. all like, we have to support our students of color in this like horrible yeah. era of Trump. And I was like, okay, yeah. you, you've made some interesting choices in your life. I really want to talk to you. Um, yeah. And then did not, did not get there. So yeah, that doesn't shock me right. given like he seemed to be somebody who really like cares about the talk and not just like wants to be there and rubber stamp everybody. Right. So that thing, okay, you know, credit yeah. to the DeVos administration, credit to Betsy DeVos. She's the Secretary of Education. So but on the for profit stuff, it's all been it's all just been uh, I mean, they're clearly just gonna undermine gainful and borrow defense. It's I mean, and there's a million ways to do it, unfortunately. It's one of those things where it's very complicated and even as they 
go through the whole re-regulation process. So that officially they can't, the earliest they can have a new borrower defense law up and running, I think is 2019. It's I, There's a timeline that I should have memorized before I came in here. It takes a long time. And they've approved none of them. And so, so there's the, so there's the, the, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. The earliest they can have a new gainful because yes. gainful is in place, I think is 2019. The earliest any new gainful would take effect at this point is like 10 but, years after. So there's this whole question of like, are they going to enforce it? Right. Like, right. are they going to, are they going to gather the data? Mm-hmm. Um, are they going to put new numbers out? I mean, because that's the, it's the rule. It's the law of the land right now. They, it, they can't undo it for like two years. Mm-hmm. But I don't think they're going to. I think they'll find some way to screw it up um, and delay it. And that's what I mean. They've, anything that they could have done to delay consequences for these programs, they've done so far. I think. I mean, two, two things here. I think Gainful's perpetual like gray area existence of like either it was passed, but it's they have to start over. It was mm. passed, but it's not really in effect. Like I don't think I ever believed at any point after 2011 that this law was ever or this rule was ever going to be enforced. I just. Too many things have happened. It's like the reverse of Obamacare appeal. Like, they're just keep mm-hmm. being things. On the other hand, I think the fact that this is fragile is, like, a major statement about the weakness of the gainful approach to begin with, which was when they picked out this, like, random phrase from the Higher Education Act, right. seized on it as a way to regulate for-profit colleges when they had congressional majorities and could have done something else and, like, chose that approach. Like, that is coming back to haunt them in a really serious way right now. And I'm not saying that's, like... They did what they could, but it's not like nobody saw this coming. Like, doing a regulatory approach means that you are in this way vulnerable. And so this was eminently foreseeable. Even under Even under a Clinton administration. I mean, it was was eminently foreseeable. Although, I mean, mean, what's interesting is it's working even though it's not – so I the way piece. the way Gainful worked without yeah. ever being enforced is a, is like the most fascinating story. Of right. The past so few I years to me. I wrote a piece about Gainful about a month ago, and I sat down, and so I'm like I'm going to write about this. So the whole thing was, you know, they they mm-hmm. finally come out and said we're going to re-regulate. I'm like, okay, that's the hook I need to come in and take mm-hmm. a look at it. And so as a good op-ed writer, I mm-hmm. said I'm going to find an example of a bad program um, and use that and basically say here's a bad program, here's how bad they are. The DeVos administration wants them to keep running. So I, fi- I you know, I open up the spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. I find one. I'm like, how about this one? And I'm talking to my colleague, Claire McCann, and she's like, oh, well, they closed. Okay, well, how about this one? Oh, well, they closed. And when I got to the fifth one and they'd, they were all gone. <laughs> you were like, maybe we I'm need like, to I'm like, maybe this, this is yeah. the story. And so we actually went through all 550 programs that uh, aren't under appeal and that have been identified as failing, and three more than 300 of them don't exist. Okay, so I must have been out of the country when this ran. Uh, you were in Croatia, or you were in I was in many place? places. I was, okay. uh, I, will, I was in many places. I won't turn to them after I've made my point. Okay. But, um, this yeah, is, yeah, the this majority is, of them have closed. So this they is, don't yeah, exist. That's They're amazing. Gone. This is a saga that has like really yeah. fascinated me. Is the, and I guess this comes back to what I was saying about the budget and what I will say about affirmative action, which is like the mm. degree to which signaling matters. And I think if you are a political science researcher right now and mm. you want to do some work on something, that is a thing I'm really interested in, is how much administrative signals that are never translated into policy with consequences. Because Gainful did translate into policy, but mm. beyond reporting, there had not at, that, at any point been measurable immediate consequences. And yet it still made... a tremendous amount of difference and i think it has made me much more cautious about being cynical about like oh but this will never this will never become law this will never have any effect this will never be enforced this is up to the discretion of individual actors in the future and who knows what they will do i mean i think the experience of gainful specifically has made me much more open to the possibility that like signaling an intent to do something because a lot of a lot of colleges, but other actors in other sectors as well, are risk averse is like in and of itself an effective way to go about making change. Um, well, and I think the so the, like the question is, do they come back? Oh, like if they don't have to, like anymore? in a post gainful, like that's oh, what yeah. I'm like. Was this enough? Right. Like, has the world changed enough? Or in a post gainful world, do we see like almost immediately a mushroom of these? Well, they of just sort of again? like resurrect them. I mean, the, the does the signaling go both ways? In some ways, the in defense of the colleges. This whole thing runs off of a you know a, a complicated data match with the Social Security Administration. Mm-hmm. If you're running a you know like a mid-sized chain of 15 for-profit colleges in the like upper Midwest, and you probably have a couple hundred programs, mm-hmm. you don't know which ones no one is earning any money at. Right. Like you wouldn't. How would you know that? Yeah. There's no way. For, I mean, you have no idea. So, 
the government comes along and says, oh, well, you know, of your 100 programs, three of them have really terrible numbers. You look at it and say, all right, we're not going to do that anymore. That I mean, okay. I'm not God, even this, blaming I, I mean, anyone. I have to come back around again on my like disclosure of data. I had come right. back around. It's useless. But like now, I have to change my mind again. Well, this but, it, but it's it's but if it was just disclosure and there wasn't mm-hmm. the threat the threat of regulatory closure coming after it, I think no one would care. It's your program's not working, and if you can't fix it in two years, we're closing yeah. it down. They're like, no, we can't fix it. Yeah. So we'll just close it down. Why would we try to fix it? Like it's right. there's probably like lots of reasons that yeah. it's not working but let's just just stop just don't do that anymore just unenroll i mean so that to me is the system working the way it ought to i want to talk about pre-college but this is the perfect segue to affirmative action okay. which i super want to talk right. about so here and we i have are. another game of thrones reference to make oh excellent okay but we'll get to free college signaling so yesterday Ooh. uh the past 24 hours okay yeah as an education journalist i am like extremely rolling my eyes about everything that has happened, which was there was a New York Times push alert on Tuesday night yep. that the New York and to an article that the Justice Department was considering investigating colleges for discrimination against white applicants. Against white people. Literally, like that is it is important to say that is explicitly what it said. Yes. I was like, I will get to this in the morning. I did not get to it in the morning. Somebody else got to it. Finally at like noon I was like, I guess I better like read this article. I had been busy with some other stuff. I'd been out the day before. And I immediately was like like Immediately, I was like, this feels wrong to me. Like, this feels like this is – and as we've discussed, they're bad at this. So, like, mm-hmm. it's possible that they're just this bad at this. Right. But I, you know, anybody, I think, who has followed affirmative action at all closely knows that, like, discrimination in the process currently is a code for discrimination against Asians, which mm-hmm. they have decided is their, like, the right. winning argument against affirmative action. And for which, legitimately, there is, like, much more – there's a much better argument to be made to that point yes. than like some media students this, are being continue. passed over. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Then like 24 hours after that story appears, the Justice Department is like, oh yes, like it is actually the posting, like the memo was mm-hmm. actually just a job posting, and it's for this like massive complaint against Harvard from like 545 Asian right. students who are passed over. Part of me, like the well, actually, part of me as an education reporter is like, mm-hmm. yeah, I told you so. Um, like there always was a much better chance that this was against Asians from the beginning mm. because like that is where the anti-affirmative action thinking is right now. The part of me that has like followed the Trump administration is like, why would I trust the trust the Justice Department's word on anything? Right. It's impossible that they like saw this rationale being put out mm. from sympathetic conservatives over the course of the day and, and seized on it and was like, oh yeah, you know, it, it was very odd that like if that's what it actually was, it was very odd that like it took twenty four hours to make that was so that's what's confusing to me, right? Because we just hit the twenty four hours, like it, it was, yeah, no, I mean, so, like it took an immensely, like you would think if that were wrong, they would have called like, no, their no, report absolutely immediately not. Take and put out a statement immediately and been that. like, yeah. this is an internal job posting. We have one complaint right it is pertaining to racial discrimination and admissions it is a large complaint we have decided to prioritize it which like in and of itself mm. is like a significant like that's a significant decision to be like yep. what we're really concerned about is the negative effects of affirmative action and we are going to send a signal that we're prioritizing that like that like the sexual assault dear colleague letter mm. under the obama administration is something that's going to become a self-reinforcing cycle of like people submitting complaints complaints being opened there being a chilling effect on universities um the seven-year-long investigation into Princeton mm. that started in 2008 did not find that Princeton had discriminated against Asians, but it did, like, release all of these extremely, like, cringe-worthy statements from sure. admissions officers, like, who had been reading people's files and describing right. them as, like, quote-unquote typical Asian students, and it was ugly, and Princeton doesn't want any more of that. So, like... Which is why they reverse foia it. Yeah. Like, and there so, is... There so is a they're real, fighting like, the, They're fighting the FOIA requests. To keep back the theme of, like, things that aren't punitive still matter like there is a serious disincentive to do that kind of thing if there if you know you're going to be investigated and if you know the like internal admission like baldly honest or baldly Mm. gross or whatever admissions comments are going to be revealed to the public um the whole thing is very strange yeah it It would be less strange if the new york times had published the thing that they got which is a hobby horse i enjoy riding on so i'm just gonna like if you can publish Mm. your secret document without in some way revealing your source you should do it. It would have been much easier for all, all, everyone to figure out what was going on if we had seen the memo mm-hmm. they were talking about. Yeah, it was. it's weird, right, in this sort of – the fact that we can't make an assumption of competence anymore just makes it all harder because I, I will say – like, I, I understand why people jump to that conclusion. I mean, I, I think it was too right. far. I think the times went way too far. Like, it was kind of clear that people involved don't know this debate super well. Right. I would have couched it. But, like, I also understand that that's – the conclusion that people drew. I mean, by by like mid-afternoon yesterday, I'm like, well, it must be true because they would have said it wasn't true by now. 
you know, like right. right? They came out and at six so, p.m. It was like one statement. To yeah, Buzzfeed and was, so like, it so was very, very I guess odd. it must be a thing, you know. And then really now, tw- it was, so it makes me wonder whether right, like maybe it's just they don't know what they're doing or they were thinking about it. So there's like they don't know what they're doing. They were thinking of doing this, and then they sort of seized on this excuse as a way to proclaim that they're not doing what they were really doing, or they just I, I don't know. It's I all think they confusing. wanted to have it both ways. I, I think they want. Right. I, I I actually think this is a great way, and I I was sort of struggling with this because I had written this piece of like going through, and I got to it pretty late because I'm an editor now and had other stuff to do. But like explaining like where the law stands on affirmative action, the three part test from Fisher that has been established, right. um, the fact that like the and I think I, I explicitly wrote like the Times interpreted this to be about white students, mm. but like affirmative action opponents also see Asian students who have been discriminated against as like a promising avenue of litigation. I don't understand so, that know, though. Like, I don't. I don't get. I mean, so I, I will say. Yeah. I think I'm ninety percent confident that there, in fact, is racist anti-Asian discrimination admissions. Mm-hmm. That seems actually pretty clear. This is one of those elephants in the higher ed room that no one will talk about or admit because, yeah. it, but it's just you know. It's the same thing that they did to Jewish students a long time ago for exactly the same reasons. Right. And but at that point, the Supreme Court had not, like, said you can't have quotas. I mean, I really, right. like, so, it is a... So, you know, like, right, typical Asian student. No one says typical white student, no. right? Because we think of all those people as different. Whereas I, I really honestly believe that the higher education power structure, which is mostly run by white people, they see Asian people as homogenous. They can't see differences they literally all look to th- the same to them because of racial differences. It's that stark and that terrible. Mm-hmm. And no one will really own up to this. And the way that, that implicitly every elite college looks at its admissions class and say, we will not have fewer than X percent black students. We will not have fewer than X percent Hispanic students. And we will not have more than X percent Asian students. That's th- That's the way it works. And that's... That's the definition of racist discrimination against Asian students. How else do you talk about it? Yeah, I mean, I think what matters here, and I think this is something that a lot of the discourse around this misses, which I'm not blaming anyone for because, like, they have not immersed themselves in Supreme Court decisions on affirmative action. But, like, I think what most people understand the rationale for affirmative action to be is to, like, overcome past disadvantage. That, like, black and Latino right. students have people never People think had that's it, why we never, do it, even right, though exactly. it hasn't but been it's, since Bakke not, in 1978. Like the, but the right. problem is, like, that's, like, this, like <clears throat> I try to always write, like, grace and admissions where I can yeah. because, like, whether or not there is a quota for Asian students is not a great argument for or against extra consideration for black and Latino students. But it's a great argument, argument against considering race and admissions, which is all that they need. So you think that's what they're trying to... Yes. I mean, there yeah. are... After Fisher 2 came down, the Center for Equal Opportunity guy wrote, like, an op-ed for Inside Higher Ed. He name-checked the Harvard and UNC suits, which are both brought by Asian students. They are backed by the people who backed Fisher. They have very much decided that the, like, oh, well, if liberals care so much about discrimination against non-white people, considering race and admissions is bad for Asians and explicitly discriminatory and will bring the whole system crashing down. Like, that is very much the angle that has been pursued mm. post-Fisher. In fact, I don't think there has been a high-profile suit from a white student in the two years since Fisher. Since then. One year. God. Because the 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 I'm quite sure that anti-Asian discrimination is is for the benefit of white people. It doesn't. Yes. It's not like if they stopped it, they would let more black and Latino students again. Because again, they're trying. But it doesn't. To get more, up it to doesn't a matter point. because all the Supreme Court right. is actually ruling on is the consideration of a student's race, because they can't have quotas. But it, can't, it has are. to matter whether it's consideration in a positive or negative fashion. But again, I know John Roberts doesn't think that's true. Yeah, I mean, he actually I mean, said that on the K twelve round. He said it doesn't matter. I mean, that's. I don't that's think. The, it's, I don't think it's an airtight case, but I do think that like the right. idea that there is a race that is directly affected much more so honestly than white people Mm. by the consideration of race and admissions like that is a pretty i don't know how the supreme court will thread that needle when Mm. one of those cases inevitably gets there but if you've already said there can't be quotas the rationale can't be remedying past harms it has to be like educational diversity or it has to be the broad benefit like and then you're at the point where you have to make the case that like having fewer than 10 percent or fewer than 15 percent asian students like is helpful to i mean this is just for your educational experience like this is just a mess yeah it's eventually one of them eventually one of those cases is going to get the supreme court and it's going to be a mess it's going to be hard to how do you i'm trying to think how do you prove it though because again they i mean colleges embrace and are very open about their diversity goals for increasing participation among black and latino students whereas the anti-asian uh, discriminatory process, which again I think is quite real, has also got to be not written down anywhere. 
It sort of is. I mean, it was in the Princeton notes. It's written down. Uh, yeah, I guess implicitly. And you look at California and right. like the share of agents. Sure, sure. Cal- yeah, you know, no, I, mean, I, mean, I do think I don't. I, mean, I don't know that. Yeah, again, it would stand I mean, that's the California law. experience is sort of the proof in the pudding. Right? Yeah, it's like, I mean, well, I, look what happened. Yeah, I don't think would. I don't know that that is like <laughs> yeah. necessarily the airtight. I'm not a lawyer, but like, yeah. it does feel like there are actually like at least much more so than like the Abigail Fishers yeah. of the world. There is some like pretty hard data that like something is. Up. Right. And maybe the answer is it is a different kind, you know, it is yet another Supreme Court decision that preserves racial preferences for mm. historically underrepresented groups. But like that does mean when you have defined affirmative action down to quote unquote recent admissions, that mm. would mean like really redefining yet again what it is and what it's for. And I don't know if there's five votes to do that. So, so, so. we don't know. Anyway, again, so it was a weird, it was a weird, 24 it was hours. A weird saga. Yeah. Um, we'll find out. But. Well, I mean, I guess the, the the real question is like when the next Abigail Fisher like files a complaint with the Justice Department, do they open it? And we don't know until that point what they're right. going to do. So what else? Yeah, I guess I've kind of thought of gainful and borrowed defenses related, but they're distinct. Yes. And they're also undermining borrowed defense and not forgiving anyone's loans and generally putting that whole process off, which is bad. Seems um, bad. Doesn't uh, – there's a – former Bridgepoint executive who is the now the head of the deregulatory commission of the Department of Education. So the Department of Education, I got a note from the press secretary of the Department of Education. They have one. Being, they do, yes. Okay. Her name is Liz Hill, I, I think. I probably have been getting yeah. emails and just have not noticed. Yeah, she's, so. she's, you see her quoted in a lot of the articles now. So she's, she's uh, I've not met her, but uh, she seems like a uh, very competent and She's doing her job. She is out there representing the Department of Education. I don't envy her that position right now. But after I wrote my, my piece, and I mentioned this, I said, you know, there's this guy who used to be the head of Bridgepoint, which is a controversial right. for-profit college mm-hmm. that has been um, criticized and denounced for, like, lots of reasons. And he is now the head of the – like, part of the, the uh, White House put out this presidential order to all the departments saying you have to have a special commission on deregulation. Mm-hmm. He's the head of – the Department of Education's Commission on Deregulation, they put their first report out, and among their like accomplishments is all the stuff they're doing around GE and borrowed defense. And yet they say that he's recused himself from all that stuff, which I don't really get. Yeah. So, um, but they, that's what they say. But I don't know. I mean, what does that mean? That, that When there are so few people, <coughs> I mean, when this, right. I think this is a problem when you have so few people. I also yeah. feel like this is so not my area of expertise, right. but recusal. Is there a little more LaCroix in there? Can I uh, no, but I have a second one. Okay, thanks. I always travel with multiple LaCroix. Okay, great. Um, this is just the plain stuff that we we got here. Yeah, it's just, the, just regular flavor. So do you do you not you don't use the flavor stuff in your drink? Not for drinks. I, you can. I've like never been that bold. I think these would be interesting with mm. coconut, but coconut is very divisive, and I didn't necessarily want to bring that into like the coconut. podcast. Yeah, I I, I do actually. It, it tastes a, like drinking sunscreen, but in a good way. I'm opposed to coconut. Um, general principle. Recusal. Yeah. Recusal is being defined down or yeah. like in, in the way that like, yeah, the, like the, the, the conflicts of interest or the separation between like right. the Trump sons and the Trump businesses, the like sessions recusal, right. like they're a we seem to have like more opportunities for recusal than previously mm-hmm. and be like, what do they mean? It's hard to police. Yeah. What are again, like the signals being sent mm-hmm. from the top, like how much you're empowering career employees who don't care versus political appointees who sort of have to. Mm-hmm. If your boss is, re- you know, I if your boss is recusing themselves. It does seem like you have to be a person of, like, great integrity to pursue whatever it is regardless. And I don't know that right. that's the position that, that people are in. It's not you're, like you're It's just, like, oh, like, oh, I'm going to recuse myself from, like, borrowing yeah. defense repayment. But, like, okay. if you're ideologically aligned All you people who work this, for me, yeah, I'm like, leaving the room now. Yeah. like do, it, do what you think is right. I just. Right? You know, I mean, just make make the right call. Don't worry about me. I'll see you at nine for our next meeting. That you is not I mean? my experience of, like, middle management. And yeah. I assume for most people, like – when right. it is very clear your boss's preference, sure. when it is very clear that it's an administration that values loyalty and values its preferences over, mm. like, impartiality, I am – the Justice Department is a little bit different. Within – I am just disinclined to believe in any in any recusal as, like, yeah. a really significant policy difference. So we'll see how that goes. Um all right, so let's see. Oh, here are my two. Well, you have one more Game of Thrones reference because you sat in the Iron Throne. I sat in the Iron Throne. Okay, but we need to talk about free college. <clears throat> oh, all right. Okay, okay. Well, let's just do the Game of Thrones things. Yes, because and I then keep we'll do free college. Wanting to do all it. Right. So, um, uh, the best thing I did this summer, I was the first person on all of Twitter 
to notice a glaring factual error in a Vox.com article about Game of Thrones and insist on a correction, which was granted. Excellent. So that's what I which did article was it? So this was a, it was an article about one of the previews. Uh-huh. And uh, it, the preview, so it was before the season started, it finishes with this dramatic picture of this guy with a flaming sword. Yes. And they wrote an article and they said the guy with the flaming sword was... Davos Seaworth. Mm-hmm. And I immediately tweeted to the author, and I'm like, hello, that's Beric Dondarrion with the flaming sword. Obviously. Um, come on. And he tweeted back and was like, you're absolutely right. And Vox fixed it. So that's, I'm happy I think, for you. I think that's the best thing I've done this whole summer. I mean, I'm sort of impressed by that because yeah. as I may have discussed here, my issue with Game of Thrones is that I have like mild to moderate face blindness. And so I can't tell apart dudes with beards yeah they both have beards it makes it makes the first four seasons extremely difficult (laughs) the last ones have actually been much easier but those are two that i still i'd be like "Uh, i don't know i'm not sure i could pick them out of a lineup so i am i'm quite impressed with you uh emily nussbaum at the new york at the new yorker has it as well and it is a tv critic so it that's gonna be hard gives me faith in my ability to like one day overcome this handicap and write about television i would want her job she has a great job i think tv critic for the new yorker in this day and age is maybe the best job in the world yeah, I'm trying to think of a better one. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not getting much. Of it I mean, more. she's great at it, so that helps. Yes, but uh, but yeah, no, that's fair. But I'm I'm very impressed with that. Thank you. Yeah. Congratulations. Yes. No, thank you. Thank like, you for your commitment to our accuracy and all things. Absolutely, I felt. Have I we seen like, that? We have not seen that scene yet. There no, no, no hasn't dude, come up no yet. No dudes with no. flaming swords. No, the flaming sword thing is not not. I'm assuming it's coming, but no, it hasn't happened yet. So, all right, you sat in the Iron Throne. How did that happen? I went to Croatia. I went many places. Um, I went to Paris for like. Supposed to be 18 hours. I ended up being six due to some horrible flight problems. Oh. It was very sad. Because you're a native French speaker almost. I'm not a native French speaker. I am a good French speaker and I have a good friend there. And I was like, hey, I'll come like hang out with you for a night in the day. And then it, it's very hard. Backstory of this trip. My sister and I had planned a trip to Croatia for my 30th birthday this for basically Laura, ever. Laura, the my sister Laura, reporter. the transportation reporter. Very good one in Los Angeles. She is. She's excellent. If you care about transportation policy, you probably already follow her on Twitter. She's better at Twitter than I am. Um, we had planned this trip forever. My parents had some friends going to Berlin who are college professors because they live in a neighborhood of exclusively college professors near the University of Nebraska. Um, I had been going to go visit them, and so it sort of turned into this like giant family Eastern European trip, which was not the intention. So I had to fly into Croatia and out of Budapest, which is, like, not easy. So I decided to pass through Paris for a night and hang out with my friend. Um, And it did not work because of planes. And this was about when United was being super horrible to everyone. Mm -hmm. So I, like, felt somewhat vindicated that United was also horrible to me. And uh, anyway, um, went to Croatia, went to Vienna, and went to Budapest, all of which were great, all of which I recommend highly. On Croatia, Dubrovnik is nuts. Do not go to Dubrovnik any later than, like, May 25th. We were, which is about when we were there. It was already completely packed. Everybody was like, oh, guys, this is nothing. Like, wait until the cruise ships show up. And I was like, no, I will not wait until the cruise ships show up. This is like, <laughs> that, that, this like is a beautiful city, but it's like the worst thing I've ever seen. In any circumstances, that's bad advice. Yes. Right? Never yes. be anywhere near yes. where a cruise ship is showing up. There were anywhere already, in the like, world. There were already like four yeah. cruise ships every day. Yeah. They were like, oh, it's like 12 at high summer. Yeah. And I was like, I cannot imagine. Anyway, Croatia um, stands in for King's Landing, at least in some parts yeah. of Game of Thrones. It's super cool. It does actually look like it. There's this like island off the coast with a museum. In the basement of the museum is this actually great article about game or this great exhibit about Game of Thrones with all this information that like the Game of Thrones tours charge like thirty American dollars for mm. and an Iron Throne that you can just like pop into. So I have I have some photos of myself on the Iron have Throne. Have you put them on Twitter? I do not think I have. I might have to do that. I revisit them in times of stress at work to like remind myself that I will climb this ladder of chaos yes. and and triumph personally. That's awesome. Um, it was great. It was great. It was a great trip. I was gone for the Comey hearings. I seriously considered going to an American bar in Budapest and watching, but uh, and then but, you and I didn't. came to your senses and didn't. I hope. I I, I felt <laughs> that like my, my parents have like mixed feelings about Trump's residency, and I didn't really want to spend the day litigating that. And so I decided that I would just read about them right. on the internet afterward. Um, but it was a good time to be gone. Yeah, that was weird. That was one. Of, it was one of those like collective TV moments that we don't have very many of. Like here in the office, everyone sort of stopped and. Yeah, I was I was genuinely I was genuinely sorry to miss it. I was like at this like hot spring spa in Budapest and it was beautiful. So I wasn't like that sad. But it was I was like, Oh, I'm not like everybody's gonna make jokes on Twitter and I'm gonna get back and I'm I was gone for the the Kofif tweet and it took me twenty (laughs) four hours to hear about it. And I had to read an explainer because I didn't understand what anyone was talking about and it was maybe the greatest moment of my life. To have been that disconnected from twenty four hours from from what Donald Trump was tweeting that I was like everybody has moved on to the jokes about the jokes and I still didn't understand what the initial jokes were about great it's like if you like me and i think any sensible person have extremely mixed feelings about your relationship with twitter Mm -hmm. it sucks now 
because I really don't want to read it as much. And I have this whole kind of personal guilt complex about the fact that I don't read enough books <laughs> and I spend too much time. But I mean, come on, like the times we're living in, it's just a smorgasbord of everything crazy and interesting all the time. I accidentally locked myself off of Twitter. I had only intended to take it off of my phone, but I forgot that I have two-step verification and my phone wasn't working because I was in another yeah. country, so I couldn't get the text message. So like my Twitter experience so every night was as we were going to bed in various hotels around Europe. Laura would read me the like five tweets that she had enjoyed most that day. It was Great. Can we just sign up for that service? Yes. I was like, please okay. start this newsletter. This, this new is all I want in the world. It's uh, like, here are the five funny tweets that I read. You yes. have no context for them. Enjoy them. I will be them. the second signer up for that. Yeah. It, was, it that. was really great. Go on vacation. Then I got back and like two weeks later, I felt like I never left. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, know it, was, like. it was great. You got, if you can, my, I think that if you can, a couple of your posts, I don't, I don't have New Year's resolutions, but I have post-vacation resolutions. Mm-hmm. So I come back from vacation and I have this, I've gained perspective. I'm going to live, live a better life. I do birthday resolutions. I've never done yeah, post-vacation no, resolutions. Vacations are the I do, I do my, New Year's and I do birthdays. They're my resolution instigator. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I've learned is, because I'm old and I've taken a lot of vacations, if you can just pick one thing to stick with, yeah, that's progress. That's so, true. I um, did. I no longer have Twitter on the front page of my phone. I have it on the fourth page, so I have to scroll all the I way to it. I don't have it on my phone at all. I have that to is... open up my browser and type in twitter.com. This is embarrassing, but there was a point in the campaign around like October 15th where I would uninstall it at the time I wanted to go to bed and reinstall it the next morning. So I did not because I found myself just like refreshing Twitter from like 1030 p.m. to 1 Mm -hmm. a.m. And in those pre-Trump 3 a.m. tweet storm days, truly nothing was happening. I just like felt like I was part of the world. and We were Mm -hmm. experiencing this insane thing together. And then I would go to bed at 1 a.m. every day, and I was like, why am I always so crabby and exhausted? I don't know. What could possibly be causing this? (laughs) Um, So So free college. Speaking of things that people – oh, this is good. Speaking of things that people fight about on Twitter. Free college. I didn't mean to do that. So I was on the internet the other day in the midst of a message board discussion about Kamala Harris. Mm -hmm. And the gist of it was the Bernie bros are saying she's not good enough. You know, she's not sufficiently – Sufficiently – um. Uh, yeah, She's, she doesn't measure up. But the criteria were $15 minimum wage, mm-hmm. single payer, mm-hmm. uh, maybe 100% sustainable energy, and free college. Cool. And I was like, oh, right. Like, this isn't going to go away. And my, so, and my assumption is, uh, whatever, whenever we start the Democratic primary for, the, for 2020, which I assume Three is Three months happening. ago. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> I, I assume everyone's just going to say, sure, yeah, free college. I don't even know there's going to be a debate this time around. Yeah, I'm really interested in this. It sort of mimics what's happening with single payer, where like mm-hmm. all of a sudden single payer is certainly less politically radioactive than it used to be. I don't think it's like as unanimously supported. I think there have been loud voices supporting it and not a lot of people who are like you know what would be great is to argue about whether we're going to get a system that is not on the table and we don't have control of congress and the main goal is to not repeal obamacare so i'm not i'm not sure it's unanimous but the degree to which that has become a litmus test like basically overnight is stunning and i think free college which has fallen a little bit off of the like mainstream discourse is a little bit going the same probably because there's nothing trump about it right so there's no where i mean healthcare is Right. Where I mean, the, the, nothing's <clears throat> happening. This yeah, is like, is this exactly. a pri- you know, like, is this a pie in the sky priority you put in your list or not? Mm. Two thoughts I have on it. One is I'm interested if it's the like Sanders plan or the modified Hillary modified Sanders plan. Right. I mean, that plan was not really in any meaningful sense free college. It was like a modified version mm. of her slightly less radical, cheaper tuition plan. Right. Uh, from earlier in the primaries, that was adapted. I don't know if that is like a sellout plan and it's all free college for everyone all the time or what the funding mechanism is. I, as someone who cares about policy details, I've been very disappointed by this Mm -hmm. debate. Um, The other thing is, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it, is I can brag on my boyfriend's work, but um, my boyfriend works for for McClatchy. He covers the Democratic Party at the moment, like sort of writ large. Mm -hmm. And he was telling me about polling data on... um, Working class and I think especially white working class voters. And he said one thing I'm constantly hearing over and over is free college is the most divisive item with voters in the Democratic platform. And I think the uni- the unanimity online and the unanimity mm-hmm. with Bernie Bros, like it made perfect sense to me as soon as right. when he was sort of breaking down the demographics. And I should just link verbally to his story, but I don't remember what it was called. But basically, it's like it's not super controversial among the oldest voters. It's not at all controversial among the, young- the youngest voters who support it. But the like middle aged people are like very skeptical of this. And I'm like, mm. yeah, because it's like a, it's sort of a judgment on their choices to a degree right. of like, well, everybody should go to college. Yep. 
every, like that is the path, you know, and I, I understand that that's not the case. I fought back against criticisms of that of Obama's agenda for a really long time. But A, like, if you're, you know, I understand that like one year of post high school education is not catchy, but it does at least, mm-hmm. you can make an argument back and it's like, no, it's not only about college. Like the free college stuff is really kind of only about college. Sometimes it's about community college. Right. Often it's not. Um, and that is, I think, a hurdle. Well, and it's 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 this stand-in in this sort of like liberals versus leftists yeah. war that right. no one actually cares about. Well, and what I said, I was like, do they really need like forty-five to fifty-five-year-old white working-class people that much? And he was like, yes. And like to get back the Senate and take the House, and I was like, okay, fine. Like, right. I guess, um, you know, I don't know how much this matters in like the grand scheme of things, but I do and think the, that the like the difference between the unanimity among people who support it and like the sort of rank and file opinion of it among the general public is really vast. Well, the, the I'm I mean, not the, even sure it is with single payer. The Bernie bro claim is that that's that we lost because we, we lost those people because we weren't, we didn't uh, uh, embrace the Bernie agenda sufficiently. Right. Mm-hmm. So there, so like a pillar of their political claim is actually like runs counter to that in terms right, of what right. those people think is right and believe in. Yeah. I think that's really, I mean, I think one theme that has come that has been building for a long time and that came out in this election is the like resentment of the petty bourgeoisie mm-hmm. against everybody else who gets things. And I yep. think that is a real danger with free college. If you were asking people who aren't going and who feel judged for not having gone to pay for a program that then benefits. I mean, I don't know. Maybe people don't break it down that thoroughly. If people can separate out tax cuts to mm-hmm. benefit them from like tax cuts they think are good, like maybe it's not a problem. But yeah. I don't know. I think I, th- I do think free college has a an optics issue beyond the like funding issues, right. which I could talk about all day, but are like maybe not at this moment the point. I mean, just the f- the word free, right? Kind of in the same way that if you poll on, uh, well, you don't say free healthcare for single payer healthcare, like you know, right, right, yeah, no. If you poll on loan forgiveness, mm-hmm. you do the same thing. People that, like ideologically, uh, people to the right are not down with loan forgiveness mm-hmm. because it's forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And, and I, 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 I what do about not... people like democratically aligned who didn't go to college? That's one I'm yeah, curious about. That's a good question. And again, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say that people to the right are opposed to forgiveness. Mm-hmm. It's this idea that like you promise to you, do something, and, you're not gonna and the government it. is yeah. going to like let you not fulfill it. Yeah, it goes against their values. Yeah. Which I mean, I understand. You know, that's a coherent and yeah. widely held way of understanding the world. I'm not trying to criticize it, but um, it, I think it has a parallel in this idea of yeah, whatever. Go to college, you don't have to pay anything. Someone else. I also, I mean, I wonder about the bailing out of the state. I mean, it, it also, yeah. like, the, the, the discourse seems so, at this point, unlinked from how college is actually funded oh, yeah. in America that it's almost, ta- like, it feels like a yank to, like, bring it back to, like, but are we talking about, like, a Medicaid-like system of, like, matching sure. grants to states? But, like, guess we are. Like, but it does feel like that is, at some point, like... Well, if we're talking about... We do understand the mechanism of <coughs> single payer. It's single like payer for Medicaid. higher education. Right. You know how the single payer system... There isn't system... a single payer in higher education. Right. But but if, if that, I think people think that's what free college means, mm-hmm. I, mean, I would just point out that the single payer healthcare system isn't go to your doctor and whatever your doctor charges, the government will pay the bill. Right. They regulate prices. Right. And they regulate quality in like all kinds of ways that is a constant sort of push and pull with the healthcare community. Whereas, I mean, one of the like, you know, many critiques that I have had and would have with sort of even the outlines of the sort of free college plans is there's no price restraint in that really, you know, I mean, I mean, yeah, they have not worked out in the policy. Well, I mean, that's the problem with the intermediary of the States, right? right? Like in single payer, like Medicare exists, Medicaid exists. It is extremely difficult for a lot of reasons to like come up Mm. with a system that's just like, okay, never mind, Everybody's getting Medicare, but like the the structure, I don't want to overstate how hard it is or how easy it is. Like the structure is there with like, with higher education, it's not. It's yeah, like you have no... Pell Grants, you have student loans, you have 50 states that fund their own institutions at varying levels per institution a lot right. of the time. Per state and per institution. For per in-state state. and out-of-state. Yeah. I mean, there's just like, there is yeah. a national healthcare system, whether or not we like to admit it. And to right. a degree, there's a national insurance system. There is nothing. There's no there higher are, education federal There are Pell Grants. Country, not really. That's it. Yeah. Am yeah. I forgetting something? There's the military academies. There are... Like, I, I feel like somebody's going to write yeah. it and be like, no, okay. actually, you forgot this thing. That's but, like, fine. there really aren't. Yeah. Like, that even, means even that these with, people didn't even stop with listening K-12, to Even with K-12, there are the DOD schools, there are yeah. the schools on reservations. Like, there's nothing even like that that's, like, directly controlled by the federal government in, right. in, in, in higher ed. George Washington wanted a national university, but they said no. I did and not. here we are. He did. Yeah, I probably knew case. that. Was that in your book? 
Uh, no, I wrote a piece after my book. Came it, out. I probably yeah. read that in your yeah. book and have forgotten that yeah. fact. No, but that's an interesting fact. Book, but yeah, yeah. No, George Washington. He did two story. Father of our country. He was onto something way back then. Well, I'm um, glad you have your op-ed. This is, by the way, if this actually happens, the like legislative fight, I will come out of higher under for the okay. retirement Good. cover, which means I need to do a better job staying on top of like who the factions that it are going to be. Right. Um, so I need to find some excuses to do some like side free college stories. But, but I do think, even though everything you say is true about the polling, I just, I'm skeptical about whether any major Democrat will fight this. I just no, I and I don't. I understand so. why they. I mean, I just I, don't think they will. I think they'll say they'll say I'm down with that. People will say, "What do you mean?" They'll be like, "I'll get back to you and try to avoid it." Well, and what I should have. I mean, I guess I should have raised this when I was talking with Alex about his story. But like the the, the counter argument to that is there are a lot of polls on education and higher education, and as far as I can tell, none of those issues have ever determined a single person's vote. It's possible that free college is like rhetorically powerful enough to break but through I feel and like change it that. But there's in all these Bernie problems, thing, like you know, right? like people care. Yeah, but like. I, it matters in a private. Did it matter? Did it matter in general though? Like, did did no, anybody flip no. from Hillary because she had like quasi adopted a Bernie free college plan? No, I don't no, want to get no, yeah. I don't, so. don't want to get so. into like would Bernie have? I think won, it matters in the primary think, a lot though. I do think it mattered in the primary, yeah. but I do think like if what you care about is not winning the primary but yeah. winning general elections, we just don't know enough at this but point this about whether this is going to swing. I mean, it. if they're actually running against Trump again, yeah. don't you think it's going to be kind of like one of those you know? NBA Western Conference Finals thing where the real fight is to get into the final because you're probably going to win once you get there? I don't know. Incumbents get reelected a lot. I know. But I mean, this is I also be can't think about 2020. Case, right? I can't think my way through yeah. the two and a half more years, three and a half more years, two right. and a half more years until the conventions or three full more, three more full years until the conventions of this. Like, it does not seem possible. It feels like the country all will have like gone into nervous exhaustion <laughs> like a year from now. Like, who knows? I don't know. Right. I'm not talking about 2020. Who knows what's going to happen? 2018, right. though, is a real thing. And this is, I mean, this is an issue for congressional candidates already. So the good news is we don't have to wait until 2020 to, like, see this start to get litigated out. Right. All right. Anything else? I think that's it. Okay. Well, uh, thanks to all of our listeners for, again, rejoining the Higher Ed Happy Hour podcast. We won't let three months go by <laughs> before the next one. Um, thanks, as always, to our fantastic production team here at New America, which makes this podcast possible. Um, and thanks to all of you uh, for listening. We will see you next time. Thank you for listening to this New America podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Music thanks to Silent Partner for their song, George. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.